Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. excited to get to talk about the new John Carter movie. Not necessarily because of the movie, but because I'm a huge fan of the character John Carter. And my experience comes mostly from the Marvel Comics series, which began in 1977 and I think ran till 1979, going 28 issues and three annuals. And, uh, I've read that the entire series, uh, for the most part, takes place between the third and fourth paragraphs of chapter 27 of Edgar Rice Burroughs' novel, A Princess of Mars, which is what the movie John Carter is based on. And everything I know, for the most part, about John Carter is based on the Marvel series. I've dabbled in the novels a little, but up until now... I don't think I uh, was mature enough to um, appreciate the Burroughs novels because um, they are a little dated to me, at least in their language. Uh, so I would start them and then kind of run out of gas and never, never finish them. But I loved the Marvel adaptation of them or the Marvel's kind of interpretation of them really because it seems like the stories that take place in the Marvel comics didn't actually happen necessarily but they're they're based on what Burroughs wrote and one thing that really um, was important to me in the Marvel version of John Carter was the Green Men of Mars particularly the Tharks because they were the tribe that that you see the most but the way they're depicted in the Marvel comics is fantastic. They're these huge, um, <laughs> well, let me see. There's, I found a description of the Tharks, or uh, the Green Men, actually, of uh, Mars. And uh, I just was going to read that because uh, it describes them pretty well, and it's, it's more articulate than I am. Uh, the green Martians are 15 feet tall, the men, and 12 feet tall, the women, have four arms and eyes mounted on the side of their heads. They are nomadic, warlike, and barbaric, do not form families, have little concept of friendship or love, and enjoy inflicting torture upon their victims. Their social structure is 
highly communal, they have no concept of private property, and is rigidly hierarchical, consisting of various levels of chiefs and the highest office occupied by an all-powerful Jeddak. However, the title Jeddak is obtained by mortal combat rather than hereditary means. They form tribes which war among other one another constantly. They ride aggressive animals called thoats, and in the comics, uh, they do a great job of depicting these. They're like multi-limbed, giant, kind of wild horse creatures, and they're really cool. It seems like in the Marvel version of the John Carter story, um, almost everything on Mars, except for you know the, the human-like Martians, the red ones for the most part, um, they all have multiple legs, just like the Tharks, I mean the uh, green men. So, uh, but they are really cool and arm themselves with swords, lances, and firearms, which use radium ammunition. And in the Marvel comics, radium was a big deal because they would always use it because it was light sensitive and would explode on exposure to light. They would use them as kind of bombs, the bullets. The green men are primitive, intellectually unadvanced, do not have any kind of art and are without a written language. While they craft weapons, any advanced technology they possess, such as radium pistols, is stolen from raids upon the Red Martians. They inhabit the ancient ruined cities left behind by civilizations which lived on Barsoom, which is Mars. And uh, that's the, what Mars is called in the Burroughs stories, and Jasum, I think, is Earth. During a more advanced and hospitable era in the planet's history, they apparently arose from a biological experiment with which went awry, and as with all other Martians, they are an egg-laying species, concealing their eggs in incubators until hatching. Tars Tarkas, who's the main green Martian we get to know, who befriends John Carter when he first arrives on Barsoom, is an unusual exception from the typical ruthless green Martian, due to having known the love of his own mate and daughter. In the novels, the Green Martians are often referred to by the names of their hordes, which in turn take their names from the dead cities which they inhabit. Thus, the followers of Tars Tarkas, based in the ruined city of Thark, are known as Tharks. Other hordes bear the names of Warhoon, Torquaz, and Third. T-H-U-R-D. So those are the uh, Green Martians. They're gigantic, and they have four arms, and... Uh, they're just warriors. They're like the Klingons of Mars, but uh, they're gigantic, and they're really cool, and they have these big teeth that go almost to their eye, two big teeth sticking up, kind of like saber-toothed tigers, but it's the bottom teeth going up. And uh, they're really cool. And so I came to this movie, to the John Carter movie, knowing only about, for the most part, about these comics. Oh, and one exciting thing is because of the movie, They've taken all 28 issues of the Marvel series and the three annuals and put them together in an omnibus, they call it, a hardcover, full-color um, book of all of the issues, which I'm excited about. The only negative is it lists at ninety nine ninety nine, but if you go online, it's like $50, and uh, I'm telling myself that $50, while, is a lot, while it is a lot of money, I'm, I'm telling myself that it's not that bad for 
for the whole series, and I do have the whole series upstairs in the attic in bags and in a comic book box. So I do have them all upstairs, but um, it's kind of a pain reading the individual comics now, I think. So um, I may start saving to buy this uh, omnibus edition because it is pretty cool. Now I have it on hold at the library, and I'm hoping to get it through interlibrary loan just to see um, how nice it is because it has all the issues and then it has a bunch of extra stuff in it from what I've read. So um, I think there's some extra art and things. It's one person complained that it doesn't reprint all of the letters pages from the original comics, but I'm not that concerned with letters pages. So that's not a big deal to me. But um, I'm excited to get it because, like I said, um, the... The Marvel version of John Carter is the one I'm most um, familiar with, and that's the one that excites me. So, And th actually, that is the reason why I wanted to go see John Carter. And I was um, surprised when they made this movie, because I remember when it was supposed to be made by John Favreau, I was all excited because it was going to be uh, animated. I thought, from what I remember originally, this was going to be an animated movie, because it's done by Disney, I pictured Pixar, you know, making it, and it would be animated, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool, because I was mostly excited to get a Thark, another Thark or Green Martian toy, because I have one on the shelf, I can see from here, it's a Tars Tarkas figure, that um, I always wanted one, but they, uh, I mostly had just seen them on eBay, and they were pretty expensive. So I held off getting one, and then one day I was at Value World. It's a local used clothing store that sells, you know, used everything for the most part, clothes and toys and shoes and bowling balls and stuff. And on the shelf I saw a Tars Tarkas figure in the box. And uh, I I don't think it was ever open because um, it's still, he's still, you know, uh, tied to the, the cardboard inside of the, you know, with the little twist ties. Um, and so I think it's, I think he was unopened and it's so cool. It's not the greatest looking Thark or Green Martian design. It, it's, um, it's similar to the, the Marvel version of the Green Men. It's more similar than the, the movie version. Um, but his torso, his, his the two torsos, cause it's kind of, like they with the forearms, it's like two torsos kind of stacked or two rib cages stacked on top of each other. He's a little thicker than the Marvel ones, and he doesn't look as cool. And he's got really big teeth that go up, and the Marvel ones don't go up as high, but he's still cool, and I'm excited to have him. So when I heard that the John Carter uh, movie was coming out years ago, I was all excited because... I knew, you know, nowadays when they release a big movie, part of that release is toys. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to get me at least one more Green Martian. John Carter would be cool to have, but the thing with John Carter is he just looks like any other guy, you know, like kind of a barbarian-looking guy when you see him in the toys. So um, it's not that exciting to have a John Carter, but to have one of the Green Martians is really cool. So I was excited when I got this. But I was excited when the movie was announced because I thought, wow, I'm going to get a cool green, you know, either a Tars Tarkas or whatever um, characters they release in the Green Martians, and I'm going to get one, and I was so excited. And, and uh, unfortunately, 
they decided not to release toys as part of the release. Now, I've seen some custom kind of toys that you can get that are like collector toys that are, you know, limited editions and they're like $100 each or something. And of course, that's way out of my price range. So I would never do that. I was looking more for a, you know, $6 figure or something. But uh, that unfortunately didn't happen. And the way the movie was released and kind of um, flopped, as they're saying, uh, means that there won't be another one for sure. So uh, my chances of getting another Green Martian are slim for now at least. So hopefully 10 years from now they forget about what happened with John Carter and try again. But I thought I had heard, and I'm not positive on this, but I thought I had heard that um, when before John Carter was released that this movie was, was originally... Um, greenlit by the previous administration at Disney or who I think it was it's a Disney movie so I would think I would think it's Disney now this is all um, from memory so don't quote me on this and uh, you know try not to sue me about it but I thought it was this was a movie from the previous administration at Marvel or at Disney they left the new guy came in and as it seems like with movie companies when new executives come in, they are not excited about the projects that were started before they got there because if the project does well, it, it doesn't look good on, on their their record because they didn't start the project. They're there just there at the end. So they kind of just dumped this movie into theaters, even though it cost $250 million. And uh, the not having toys as part of the release was um, part of them not caring about this movie, which is interesting because when you spend $250 million on a movie, you think you'd push it as much as you can because I could have pictured John Carter being something that you'd get John Carter toys at McDonald's or at Burger King, you know. I pictured I could picture this being huge, and I don't think they handled it right. I think that's part of the problem about why it didn't do that well. And uh, I know looking at the box office because I'm not, you know, to me it's I'm not concerned. I have no financial interest in these movies. Um, it's only made $72,724,715 as of June 3rd, 2012. So <clears throat> with a budget of $250 million, that says production budget too. So I don't know if that includes uh, advertising and prints and everything or not. But um, the the budget I see is two hundred fifty million, and from what I've seen, foreign grosses are at two hundred nine million seven hundred thousand. So add that to the seventy two, and it's made money. So it's not a flop. Plus, it's coming out on DVD, and I'm sure this is the kind of movie that'll do well on DVD. Now, when it was released, I remember it being in three D, and I didn't see it in 3D, although the theater I went to, Cinemark, um, I paid a dollar fifty to see it at Cinemark, and uh, they do show 3D there because they have Titanic there in 3D, and it's three dollars and fifty cents for the 3D movies there. So I may see Titanic again. I've seen that twice in the theater when it was new, and it would be interesting to see it again in 3D. Although, as I've said in the past, um, with my 3D experiences, 
I tend to get headaches and my eyes get tired and everything when I watch a 3D movie. So I don't think I'm the perfect customer for 3D. But anyway, the movie uh, has been considered kind of a failure. It was directed by a guy named, oh, his name is Andrew Stanton. And he is, uh, they say, from what I'm, from his information on Wikipedia, he's an American film director, screenwriter, producer, and voice actor based at Pixar Animation Studios and Sony Pictures Animation. He wrote and directed A Bug's Life as co-director, it says. Find, he directed Finding Nemo. I'm pretty sure, and Wally, and uh, so John Carter's his first live-action directing job, and he co-wrote every film of the Toy Story franchise, Monsters Inc. and Monsters University. So, and he won two Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature for Finding Nemo and Wally. So this is not this guy um, knows what he's doing. Although a lot of people say um, it was kind of a risk because this is his first live-action movie. So uh, he, even though he has directed these animated movies, he this is his first live action. So um, that's one of the things people say was one of the risks they took with this movie. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that much of a risk. The guy's pretty accomplished. And while um, people say this is kind of a, there's kind of an independent feel to this movie, a lot of people say because... He, Stanton was like the auteur kind of that that guided it through the process of of uh, writing and and creation and everything. It doesn't give you you don't get the feel I don't think that there was one person guiding this movie because while I haven't read a Princess of Mars I've read you know the Marvel comics and I'm familiar with the story for the most part and they made a bunch of changes in the movie that, although a lot of people say that it's surprising how close they stuck to the original story, there are a bunch of weird changes that don't make any sense to me, and it almost feels like like this was developed by committee to me, because a lot of the changes just kind of generalize the movie, or they add humor to the movie, or, you know, just they make it less serious for the most part with the changes. Like when John Carter... Um, arrives on Mars, he wakes up on Mars and he stands up and, you know, there's a thing where he, because he's on Mars and the gravity is different, he's stronger. So when he, when he stands up, he kind of leaps into the air and in the movie, it's kind of done for comedy. But in the, the book, cause I've read, like I, I listened to the voice of America audio version of the book, which is, which is compressed. It's not the whole story. Um, and I've kind of read, because the Gutenberg Project has the original text where you can download it for free, and it's legal. So uh, I've read parts of it now. Um, it's much more serious in the book, you know, where Carter, he realizes how strong he is, and he kind of, you know, when he goes to stand up, he kind of leaps, and then he works on, you know, learning how to walk again because he's so strong he has to leap, you know, he, he can leap through the air with barely with barely an effort. And one thing I think the movie does right after the the comedy of him um, learning, you know, learning that this is the case, that he's so much stronger, is watching him leap through the air is really cool. I think they do a nice job with that in the movie. And, and they do a nice job with a lot of the stuff in the movie. I think the movie is a good movie. I think it's a fun movie, you know, the, with with flaws. It's still a good movie. But I I think for some reason... 
it got that uh, that Ishtar kind of thing where people started to look at how big the budget was and uh, and wanted it to fail um, just because it was such a big budget because uh, you know while I don't to me it doesn't feel like that big of a movie you know there's a lot of computer generated stuff going on in there and, you know it's a lot of it's like desert kind of looking and, and there are these huge huge cities that they're in but that's all computer generated so it doesn't seem to me like it would cost 250 million to make this movie and Willem Dafoe I think is the only real name in the movie so I don't understand where they spent this 250 million because it stars Taylor Kitsch who I've never heard of Lynn Collins Samantha Morton Mark Strong Siren Hines Dominic West James Purifoy, who I've heard of, but I, I'm not positive on who he is, and Willem Dafoe. So it's, I don't know where they spent this $250 million, but it's somewhere, apparently. <laughs> but it feels like they could have probably done this movie a lot cheaper and made a huge profit on it. You know, somewhere they spent the $250 million, but I'm not sure where it is. And I'm no expert, but... Uh, it just doesn't feel like a $250 million movie to me. One problem I have is because I read the Marvel comics, the main character who plays John Carter, Taylor Kitsch, does not look like the John Carter from the comics. So, you know, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger even would have looked way closer to the, the John Carter from the comics than Taylor Kitsch does. So that was a problem at first, although I got over that quickly because I think Kitsch does a good job as the, as John Carter. And the girl who plays Deja Thoris, who's the female lead, Lynn Collins, I would assume is her, she actually, she looks closer to the comic version than, than Taylor Kitsch does. But uh, if you were going to go like a, cast a perfect Deja Thoris from uh, Deja Thoris to match the comic look, you'd get like that, um, what's her name, Sofia Ver Vergara, Vergara, the woman from, oh shoot, what is it, the Modern Family or something, the shows, she is what I picture um, Deja Thoris looking like, but I don't know if she could get rid of her accent for the role, because she has a pretty heavy accent, wherever she's from, and, uh, but she's who I would I would think would be the perfect Deja Thoris would be. But this girl does a good job. I mean, she is hardly the weakest part of the movie, Lynn Collins. And actually, acting wise, I don't. Th I think it's a pretty strong movie. I don't think anyone does a bad job. Um, the green men of Mars aren't really green in this. The babies are green, but everyone's kind of tan. But I think that's more because they're in the desert. So, but. Uh, I think the character generated, uh, the computer generated characters are good. The Tharks are all made um, by a computer. They're all animated. Willem Dafoe's character, Tars Tarkas, only exists as, you know, as an animation. So you just hear Willem Dafoe's voice. Um, the, the Tharks are cool. The Warhoon are cool. They're another green tribe you see. They're a little more wild and barbaric than the Tharks who are pretty wild themselves but um, the action's good I, it's hard to, to complain about this movie I think it was a fun movie but I heard a lot of people say um, they didn't like um, certain parts of it like 
you know, there are people who say online that it's not a good movie, and I, I would disagree. I think it's a good movie. I think it's got its flaws, and part of the flaws tend to be, to me, that maybe they were kind of trying to make it more family-friendly, although you think of a movie where people are getting hacked and stabbed and slashed with swords for uh, however long this movie is. It's like two hours, two hours plus, 132 minutes. Um, it's hard to picture that as a family-friendly movie, you know, with all this killing going on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, it, that's what I get. Is I, It just seems like they tried to dumb down the movie so the average person would understand it, even though it, some of the things they added make it really complicated. And uh, But I'll get into that in a minute. But it just seems like all the changes were made to go for a more general audience and... Uh, which doesn't feel like an auteur to me. It feels like a committee trying to come up with the you know the broadest possible appeal, and uh, I think that's what hurt it. Because instead of sticking to um, the original source material, which is like a hundred years old this year, something like that, uh, you know, it's like if it was good enough for the past hundred years, and it was good enough for a great Marvel comic series, why would you have to make these silly changes for the movie? You know, and like some of them, it's like I can't remember all the changes because I saw it a few days ago, and and some of them are, are you know are leaving my memory, but like like the one I said where where Carter discovers that he's stronger on Mars, it's played for laughs, and uh, like Deja Thoris when her when her her ship is shot down um, by the Tharks. And she's taken captive, and that's how John Carter meets her in the comic. And that's the thing, is I don't know exactly everything that happens in the original novel because I have to read it. I still have to finish it. <laughs> but I will. I promise soon I will finish it. Um, he falls in love with her instantly and wants to protect her and wants to be with her. And in the the movie, he's just kind. Of, she's kind of there, and he, you know, he protects her because he's a, a gentleman, southern gentleman, and that's what m men do is they protect women, you know. And so later they kind of fall for each other. Whereas in the comic, it's like he knows instantly that this he's in love with her. So that's different, you know. And she's on her way to be married to this bad guy who's. Um, I'll, I'll read the synopsis in a minute, but who's this bad guy from another, a warring city that's, that's warring against her, her dad's city. Cause her dad's like the, the head of helium, I say, but helium, I think is how they say it in the voice of America audio version of the story. And, uh, it's like to have peace between the two cities, um, and to save helium from being destroyed because the main guy from the other city has gotten this power, which I, I've learned later is the ninth ray, but it's never called that in the movie. Well, it may be called that, but not, it's not dwelled on, dwelt on. It's, uh, you know, it's mentioned, but you, I didn't remember really the ninth ray from the movie, uh, but my research after I've learned about it, which is interesting because in what I've learned, the ninth ray is huge on Mars and uh, their atmosphere factories, because they have these big factories that create the air for Mars, for the planet, for everyone to survive, relies on the ninth, the ninth wave, ninth, yeah, ninth wave, to, uh, to function, to create the atmosphere. So, in the movie, they're just, they're just discovering it, that the, um, Dejah Thoris is, because she's the head, 
scientist or something from helium, which I don't remember from the comic and I don't know about from the book, but uh, she's just discovering it. Whereas the the main bad guy from, from the other city, he's given it to him by the white Martians. And uh, I'll, just, I'll explain that in a minute, called the Thanes. And uh, he uses that ninth wave to... Uh, to um, you know, blackmail them into uh, having having them having Dejethoris marry him so that he doesn't destroy helium or helium, as they say in the audio version. But that's it's a British version, so their pronunciation would be different, anyways. I would think. So it's like they add this silly subplot about the bad guy from the other city, and Dejethoris is supposed to marry him. And at one point, John Carter says, "Why don't you just marry him?" And, you know, and, and, you know, suck it up and marry him and, you know, the, save your city. It's like in the comic version. But like I said, again, I can't speak for the novel version, the original version, 1914, Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, Princess of Mars. But he would never have said that in a comic because he was in love with her from the second he thought, saw her. So it just didn't make sense to me. That just pulled me out of the story. Um, one big thing they changed was how he gets to Mars. And I'll go into that. You know, I'm going to read the plot synopsis in a minute, which is kind of long, but I'm going to read it anyway because I think it'll give you a better view of what the story is. And a lot of people might not even know what this is because it's called John Carter, and that's it. And my complaint originally was, why don't they call it John Carter of Mars? But somewhere, you know, this, the, the, the guy who did it, Andrew Stanton, must have thought, you know, well, it's going to be John Carter. And everyone's going to say, who's John Carter? Who's John Carter? And at the very end of the movie... It's it changes to John Carter of Mars because he then starts to see himself as wanting, you know, to be on Mars because that's where he feels home. But I think that's part of what hurts this movie in terms of appeal to the audience or, or getting people to go to the theater is people don't know what the heck John Carter is. John Carter of Mars, they say, oh, of Mars? Oh, it takes place on Mars. But if you're not familiar with the story, you don't know who John Carter is. Just like while I was reading about um, getting information about um, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars novels, I didn't know he... I had heard somewhere that he wrote these Venus... He has Venus novels too, but I've, I know nothing about them. And it's like, well, if, if they did a Venus movie... Because he did a series of Venus novels from what I've read. Um, Carson Napier, a Venus series, they call it. I know nothing about that series. So if they did the Venus series, I would be lost, you know. So if if they made it like it says Carson Napier of Venus, if they made a movie called Carson Napier, you know how how fast I'm going to go to the theater? Not very fast because I've never heard of him. So I'm sure most people have never heard of John Carter. So I think they really hurt themselves not calling it John Carter of Mars. And the Marvel comic series was called John Carter, Warlord of Mars, which is even cooler but they don't call it that. Now, here is a synopsis of the movie, just so you can have an idea of what's going on. But like I said, they, I'll explain the difference about how he gets there in a minute. But I'll read um, the synopsis on, the, from online, just so you can, uh, if you've never heard of John Carter, this will give you, hopefully, a, uh, an idea of what the story is. Here's the synopsis. After the sudden death of John Carter a former American Civil War Confederate Army captain, so he's a captain from the South in the Civil War, 
His nephew, Edgar Rice Burroughs, whom Carter called Ned, attends the funeral. As per Carter's instructions, the body is put in a tomb that can only be unlocked from the inside. His attorney hands over Carter's personal journal for Ned to read in the hope of finding clues explaining Carter's reasons for death. You know, how, why he died, because it was all pretty sudden. The film flashes back to the Arizona Territory where Union Colonel Powell arrests Carter. Powell, knowing about Carter's military background, wants his help in fighting the Apache. However, Carter escapes with the guards in pursuit. In an ensuing chase, both Carter and Powell find themselves in a cave in which Carter has been looking for gold. A thern appears in the cave at that moment, who we later, well, if you read when you get home, you learn is a uh, white Martian. If the therns, that, that is. A thern appears in the cave at that moment. Carter kills him, and with the help of his medallion that the thern was holding, is unknowingly transported to Barsoom, or Mars. There, due to his different bone density and planet's low gravity, Carter is able to jump high and perform feats of incredible strength. He is captured by the green Martian Tharks and their Jeddak, or king, they say, Tars Tarkas. Elsewhere on Barsoom, the red Martian cities of Helium and Zodanga have been at war for a thousand years. Sab Than, Jeddak of Zodanga, armed with a special weapon and obtained from the Therns, proposes a ceasefire and an end to the war by marrying the princess of Helium, Dejah Thoris. Now the weapon he has is that ninth wave, I think it's called. Hopefully I'm not saying it incorrectly, but I'll explain more about that later. The princess makes an escape and is saved by Carter when she's captured by the Tharks. Her plane is shot down or her airship is shot down. And she's saved by Carter. Carter, Deja, and Tarkus's daughter Sola embark on a quest to get to the end of a sacred river to find a way for Carter to get back home. Now they've just jumped in the synopsis over a whole chunk where Theja Thoris is taken captive after her ship is shot down by the Tharks, the green men. And Carter saves her, kind of, because the one Thark is kind of abusing her, and he kills him by hitting him once. And then because of that, he gets the rank of the Thark he killed. And uh, he, But he's still, um, he's still kind of a prisoner, but he kind of gets appointed as Tars Tarkas' right-hand man, and uh, his right arm, I think it's called. And, but he, you know, he's a, still afraid for Dejah Thoris's life, so he wants to um, get her out of there and take her back to Helium. And, uh, but, but no, not to Helium. He wants to find a way back home to Earth. And so he escapes with her. Yeah, because when she, he's afraid she's tricking him and get taking him to Helium instead of looking for this um, way to get back to Earth. So he escapes with her and Sola, who um, we later learn is Tars Tarkas's daughter, even though Tharks, the green men in Mar of Mars, never know who their children are. They're all raised by the whole tribe, usually, but he knows. And uh, so Carter, Deja, and Tarkas's daughter Sola embark on a quest to get to the end of a sacred river to find a way for Carter to get back home. There they find information about the Ninth Ray, a means of utilizing infinite energy and also the key to understand how the medallion works to get Carter back home. But they are attacked by the Thern leader, Matai Shang, and his minions, the Green Men of Warhoon, who are the more violent tribe of Green Men. 
After the attack, Carter is captured and taken back with Deja, while Sola is able to escape. The demoralized Deja grudgingly agrees to marry Sabthan, then gives Carter his medallion and tells him to go back to Earth. Carter decides to stay back and is captured by Shang, who tells him the purpose of Thurns and how they manipulate the civilizations on different planets. Carter is able to make an escape, and he and Sola go back to the Tharks and ask for their help. There they discover Tarkus has been overthrown by Tal Hajus, who is another um, Thark. He's, you can see he doesn't like John Carter, and he he's uh, the rival, the main rival to Tars Tarkus, who wants to be the Jeddak of, of the Tharks. And so he has challenged Tars Tarkas after Carter left and apparently beaten him. Uh, Tarkas, Carter, and Sola are put on trial in a gladiatorial battle with two vicious ape-like creatures. They're the white apes of of uh, Mars. Supposedly the only thing the green men of Mars fear are the white apes of Mars. They're these giant white apes with four or six arms. I can't remember how many arms. And in the Marvel Comics version, they kick butt. They look great. And in the movie version, they're way bigger than in the comic. They're gigantic, and they're they have bad eyesight, so they're not. They look kind of goofy, so they have trouble kind of finding these guys in the in the arena. And of course, Carter, you know, defeats both of them, kills them both. But uh, you know, they're all thrown into this uh, arena. They think to die, you know, the Tharks are throwing them in there, in there to die. But after uh, Carter defeats the ape, the white apes, kill, and then he kills uh, Hajus, the uh, the um, the Thark who defeated Tars Tarkas and took over the the, the lead of the, uh, the Thark tribe, um, Carter becomes the leader of the Tharks. So he says, by as the leader... He says that they're going to go to Helium and help um, save Helium and save Dejathoris. The Thark army charges on Helium and defeats the Z- Zedangian army by killing Sabthan, who's the Jeddak of Zedangian. Although they go to Helium and no one's there, the wedding is taking place. No, they go to Z- Zedangian and no one's there. It turns out the wedding's going taking place in Helium, so then they have to get in ships and fly there, and the Tharks don't like to fly, so that's another humorous part where Carter flies there and, you know, attacks, and then they all of the Tharks show up a little later and attack, and, and they defeat the Zedangians and the Thanes. So Carter kills Sabthan. I think he's the one who kills him, and... Uh, Carter becomes Prince of Helium by marrying Deja Thoris. On their first night, Carter decides to stay forever on Mars and throws away his medallion that would help him get back to Earth. Seizing this opportunity, Shang, who's the head of the the, the Thanes, banishes him back to Earth by you know sends Carter back to Earth and he doesn't know how to get back to Mars. So Carter, while back on Earth, embarks on a long quest looking for clues of the Thurns' presence on Earth. I said Thanes, it's the Thurns. Um, and hoping to find one of their medallions, because in a conversation with the main Thern, the names aren't always as important. You just know he's the main Thern. Um, he does, he knows that they spend a lot of time on Earth and are familiar with it. So he's looking for a way to uh, get back to Mars by finding the Thanes, the Thern's presence on Earth. Sorry. Um, after several years, he 
appears to die suddenly and asks for unusual funeral arrangements. This is consistent with him having found a medallion, since his return to Mars would leave his Earth body in a coma-like state. He made Ned, Edward Rice Burroughs, his protector, giving him clues about how to open the tomb. The film reverts to the present, where Ned runs back to Carter's tomb and opens it, only to find it empty, which is the last thing he should do, but he does. Unknown to him, he is being followed by Matei Shang, the head of the Therns. As Shang prepares to kill Ned, Carter appears and kills Shang, then tells Ned that he never found a medallion. Instead, he made a scheme to lure Shang out of hiding. Carter takes his medallion, whispers the code, and is finally transported back to Barsoom, which then starts the next book, I think. But, you know, the movie ends there. I think it's Warlord of Mars or something is the uh, next one, which has um, Carter showing up like 10 years later. But um, one interesting thing is they change how Carter gets to Mars because these therns in the comics, they're never mentioned that I remember. And uh, they're a huge part of this movie and they're all powerful for the most part. But they're the white, one of the three groups of white um, Martians, because you find when you read about the Martians and Burroughs and stuff, there's the yellow Martians, the white Martians, the black Martians, the red Martians, the green Martians, the white apes, everything has a color. And everyone's always surprised by how light John Carter's skin is because um, he's not like the red Martians who are the dominant race of Mars for the most part. But one thing they change is how Carter gets to Mars. Because, you know, he's, uh, he's prospecting for gold with his, his friend, who's another former Confederate soldier slash um, uh, officer in the Confederate Army. And they find gold, but while uh, Carter's partner is going to town or something to get more equipment to be able to mine the gold, he's attacked by Indians. And Carter saves him only for him to die in his arms for the most part. And Carter runs into the cave to hide. And once he's in the cave, he falls asleep and wakes up on Mars for the most part. Whereas in the movie, he goes into the cave. One of the therns appears. He sh shoots him, I think. And the thane thern, <laughs> I can't say thern. I keep saying thane. The thern falls down dead. He grabs the medallion that he was holding. And suddenly the thern, as he's dying, says Barsoom. And apparently that's how you get back to Mars is by saying the name for the most part. And so he's transported to Mars. Then he wakes up on Mars. So, so they for some reason convolute this whole thing, of, you know, because in the movie he's he's a prospector by himself, and he and they they think he's crazy because he's got this idea that he's going to find this this um, this uh, cave full of gold, and and he's running out of money, and the bar owner, the slash trading post owner is mad at him because he's, you know, he's giving him credit, but he's afraid he's never going to get paid. And, uh, you know, Carter gets um, approached by these Union soldiers, and uh, they, the leader of the Union soldiers is looking for Carter to get him to help them fight the Indians because he was such a good soldier for the South that he's going to help them fight the Indians which is, isn't the way the, mo the story originally goes. And Carter, there's a, you know, a humorous series of, you know, Carter tries to escape from the, the Union soldiers and he keeps getting caught and brought back. And it's like the John Carter in the comic, 
And again, I can't totally talk about the, the books yet, which I think there's eight or ten, so it's going to be a little while before I read them all. But um, the Carter from the stories, the non-movie Carter, would never have let this happen. He's a serious, tough guy, and he's a professional soldier, and he would have killed or kicked the crap out of these Union soldiers. So for some reason, they've turned Carter kind of into a goofy guy in the movie, you know. So that's one thing I don't like about what they did is Carter, you know, you can say, oh, it's this pulp, you know, hero from the teens. Um, you know, what's the big deal if they make him silly, you know, kind of like what they did with Dark Shadows. And, you know, Dark Shadows is a soap opera turned into a corny movie. This is kind of, you know, it's a pulp actor, kind of like a Flash Gordon turned into a, a, a kind of a silly movie. And, but to me, he's a little more serious, and uh, so I didn't like that they did that, you know, because um, it's because it's kind of zany, you know. And, and but they add that whole thing where Carter finally escapes from the Union soldiers, and and uh, it's like he takes the the leader of the soldiers hostage, kind of. But then suddenly they start being, oh well, I think it's he he. No, you know what it is, is while the soldiers are pursuing him, they're attacked by Indians. Carter helps the soldiers fight the Indians. The Their lead officer is injured. Carter grabs him and, you know, takes off with him. He takes him to this cave where they hide. And the Indians catch up with him, but the Indians refuse to enter the cave because there's like a symbol over the cave, like a spider. And Carter keeps saying how this spider is... Uh, you know, he's looking for this spider cave or something. And so the Indians are, Indians are afraid to go in. And then that's when the Thurn appears and he shoots him and um, was transported to Mars. Now, one thing in the original story is Carter says he doesn't know how old he is. He's, he thinks he can't die. He's like a mortal and he's lived for a long time and he doesn't remember ever being anything but the age of 30. And so it's like there's this kind of magical, mystical thing going on with John Carter in the stories, at least in the comic for sure, and I'm pretty sure it's in the book too. But it's never mentioned in the movie. It's like they take they take all of the kind of magic out of the movie right away. So I don't know why they did that. Because, you know, if you're going to be magically transported to another planet, I don't understand why the whole thing about, you know, he can live forever and he never ages and all that. And he's like been a soldier his whole life, you know, it's like a big deal. So when he gets to Mars, it's not a, it's not a unusual that he's, you know, this warrior, even though he's much stronger on Mars, he still has the skills that he had on Earth, you know, so he's a warrior. Whereas he's kind of bumbling on Earth in the movie and he's kind of bumbling when he gets to Mars. And then little by little, he gets better on Mars. So he kind of transforms into the soldier. So I think I think that's kind of not... I, I didn't like what they did with that, with the movie. So so that's, that's another change I didn't like. Um, the Thane, the Therns are a huge difference in the movie than what, from what I knew in, in the comics and, and a little bit of the, 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 from the stories, um, at least from Princess of Mars. The Therns, from what I've read online, they're descendants of the original white Martians who live in a complex of caves and passages in the cliffs above the valley door, which they do in this movie. This is the destination of the river Is, on whose currents most Martians eventually travel on a pilgrimage seeking final paradise 
once tired of life or reaching 1,000 years of age. The valley is actually populated by monsters overlooked by the, the therns who control these creatures and ransack and eat the flesh of those who perish, enslaving those who survive. They consider themselves a unique creation, different from other Martians. They maintain the false Martian religion through a network of collaborators and spies across the planet. They are themselves raided by the black Martians. They are white-skinned and bald, but wear blonde wigs. Now, the therns in the movie are this. That was the therns from the story from the the, the um, Burroughs novels. The therns in the movie are this, what I found online. They are a race of shape-shifting white beings from the world of Barsoom, which is Mars. They control the planet from the shadows. Inter interesting fact to note that the therns have not a single hair upon their heads. They are led by a holy Hecador, the current one being Matai Shang. Using their advanced technology, the mysterious therns represent themselves at the as the messengers of Isis, the Barsoomian goddess, in order to further their own plans. Therns are shown to have frighteningly powerful abilities such as shape-shifting into a variety of beings such as Tharks, Warhoons, Red Martians, and Earthlings. They also have control over the mysterious blue energy known as the Ninth Ray, which they can use for a variety of uses, such as forming constructs made from solid energy, such as blades injected into people's bodies that will either kill them or control them, or a more deadly use is to fire it like a beam and cause anyone who is hit to dissolve into nothing. Their other powers include some mild form of telekinesis and some sort of mental telepathy that can allow them to communicate with each other over great distances and being able to communicate with any species, even the Warhoon. The Therns have incredibly advanced technology which they access with their medallions. They can use them for many purposes. The most amazing of these is being able to instantly teleport to any location on Barsoom or to any other planet in the solar system, such as Earth. So in the movie, the Therns are kind of like gods for the most part. Whereas in the stories, they're just another, they're kind of a bad guy race on, on Mars. Here's another uh, uh, page I found of information on the Therns. Therns are a white Martian race who inhabit the area surrounding the valley door. Whether or not they have any relation to the other white races such as the Orovar or the Lotharians is unrevealed. The skin tone of the thern is identical to that of Caucasian humans from Earth. At a glance, they appear as blue-eyed, blonde-haired humans. Closer inspection reveals that the hair upon their head is made from a, is a wig. It's a well-made wig. They wear these as their bodies are entirely hairless, as, is, as it is considered disgraceful to not wear this wig. Up until they are exposed as frauds by John Carter, the popular belief was that they were descendants of the original white Martians, at odds with what the Black Martians, the Thern's greatest enemies, claim. Because the Black Martians say they're the first, and the Therns apparently say they're the first Martians, or descendants of the first. Therns arose from a union of their kind and white apes, according to this. Generally, this race seems to wear more clothing than other Martian races, as members are noted wearing robes. Um, Pre-John Carter's appearance, though not Especially industrious, the Therns amassed great power over the centuries through their promotion of the cult of the Holy Therns, which preached that the way to paradise lay in the valley door. For centuries, Martians of all colors headed down into the valley only to find a, 
land heavily populated by white apes and plant men whom the therns had trained to attack the unwitting pilgrims. The few who survived were this horror, like the Princess Thuvia of Plarth, Patarth, became enslaved by the therns, toiling away for years until the therns decided that they had outlived their usefulness, at which point they were killed and served up to the leaders of the holy therns. Ironically, the therns themselves had been fooled. The firstborn had convinced them that the real way to paradise lay in the temple of Isis, which lay in the Omean Sea, the stronghold of the black Martians. For centuries, the holy therns lured unsuspecting Martians to their deaths, their own civilization thriving, but for the occasional raids by the black pirates. These raids always ended in the kidnapping both white and red women, but the therns dared not fight back. Their first and only attempt to attack the firstborn resulted in a brutal reprisal. After Carter's arrival in the stories, their civilization downfall came when the Earthman John Carter, long believed to have died saving all of Barsoom from oxygen starvation, suddenly appeared in the Valley Door in 1886. This is when he comes back to Mars. This is his second trip to Mars. By strange coincidence, his old ally, Tars Tarkas, has been sent to the Valley to find him, and, as with many other unfortunate Martians, he and several other green Martians are attacked by plant man and white apes. Carter intervened to save the great Thark's life, and at length their efforts to escape from the beasts led them to one of the Thern's bases. After still fighting, Carter and Tars Tarkas met Thuvia, and together attempted to escape. That night, however, happened to be the occasion of one of the Black Pirates' raids, and in the ensuing chaos, the Thern's lost Fedor, daughter of their leader, Matai Shang. She, along with Carter, who had also been captured, was, were brought before Isis, the false goddess of both the firstborn and the therns. She was forced to look upon the hideous old woman and sentenced to serve as a slave for one year before being killed and served up for the ancient woman's consumption, but attempted to force Carter to share her fate by telling Isis of his fighting prowess, which caused him to be sentenced to death in a combat arena. Carter escaped, and Matai Shang sought to stop him from spreading the truth about the valley door. When Carter eventually led the the army of Helium's navy, well, the city of Helium's navy, to war with the firstborn, the Therns attempted to intercept his fleet and instead ended up in battle with the firstborn. Carter took advantage of the situation and led a two-pronged attack on both the valley door and the golden temple of Isis. The latter assault leading to the death of Isis herself. In short order, the Therns lost both their naval forces and their goddess. They don't sound like these all-powerful gods from the movie, so that's one thing that's really different. After Isis was overthrown, the Therns were a broken and scattered people. Some remained loyal to the holy Therns, but they were few and they found friends only in the most remote kingdoms, such as Koal, Kol, where news of their fraud had not arrived. Many others swore allegiance to Zodar, X-O-D-A-R, their admiration for his fighting prowess winning out over their centuries-old hatred of the black men, found guidance under a new leader, or became Panthans, mercenaries who swore allegiance only to their latest client. Still others integrated into Red Martian society. Prior to their downfall, the Thern's religion was complex and shared many similarities to the primary religion of Greater Barsoom and that of the firstborn. 
Like the black Martians, they believed themselves superior to all other Martian races to the point that they saw nothing wrong with consuming the flesh of the lesser races and worshipped an individual they believed to be godlike. At the age of 1,000 years, every Thurn would travel to the Temple of Isis, believing that it was the true way to heaven. That they had used a similar ruse to lead red and green Martians to their death did not give them any pause, apparently. They believed that if they died before they reached 1,000 years of age, their soul would pass into a plant man to live out the remainder of the 1,000 years. If the plant man died before the final hour of the 1,000 years, then the soul would supposedly pass into the body of a white ape. If the white ape died, then their soul would pass into a cilian and be lost forever. The consuming of human flesh was ritualistic among the race, and they would not consume the flesh unless it had died being drained of blood and life by the horrid plant men, as they believed the plant men drained the tainted life from the body. So in these stories, you know, the therns, from what I remember, don't appear in the comics. From what I remember, it's been a while since I've read them but they don't sound familiar. In the movie, the therns are these unstoppable <laughs> um, white Martians, but they're never called white Martians. They're all, they don't seem human in the movie, although we know they can die because Carter kills one in the cave. Now, information on the ninth ray, which in the movie is this mysterious blue kind of um, lightning kind of power, static, you know, sparks that... Um, the therns control. Deja Thoris has just discovered it, but is uh, when she just shows it to her dad, um, one of the therns in disguise destroys the machine, so the, it's lost to them. But in the movie, the ninth ray is kind of this mysterious thing, and this is the the in the movie, uh, the ninth ray is a mysterious blue light spectrum that is a major focal point in the movie. It is mostly used by the therns, but Deja Thoris was close to unlocking it. The therns can manipulate the ninth ray in a variety of uses, such as solidifying it to make simple constructs, such as blades, which allow them to levitate, or, or it does allow them to levitate, control someone's body, or use it as a beam that can disintegrate someone on contact. Now, that's what the movie kind of says the, the ninth ray is. But on another page, I found that while it's not explained in the movie, um, in the original books, it is explained from Princess of Mars. Um, there's no one succinct explanation. It includes all nine rays of the sun. So this guy summarized it. He says, um, the first seven rays are the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. In the books, the eighth and ninth rays are colors not seen on earth. In one place, John Carter sees them as shining from a jewel on the man who runs the atmosphere plant that generates the air so everyone can live on Barsoom. When he sees this man wearing a didum, the didum scintillates in all nine colors of light, including two we've never seen on earth, the eighth and ninth rays. Again, this is in the book. The eighth ray is what makes light move. It's a propulsion ray that propels light away and is what they capture and store in the bladders of their flyers so they can fly. When a bladder bursts, this ray leaks out and the flyer falls. The ninth ray is never explained in detail, but it's critical for them to use in the atmosphere plant to provide enough oxygen for everyone on Bursum to live, which it's like they took this ninth ray, which apparently is a big part of the stories, and made it this um, unusual, rare thing in the movie, which... Is another you know another thing I don't understand, um, but here's a, an excerpt from, I think from um, 
from uh, Princess of Mars, I think. It's chapter 20, it says, in the Atmospheres Factory by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Then a door opened on the far side of the chamber, and a strange, dried-up little mummy of a man came toward me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment, a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner plate set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter but that scintillated nine different and distinct rays, the seven colors of our earthly prism, and two beautiful rays which to me were new and nameless. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought, while he could not fathom an iota of my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power, for the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone in my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three-quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically, or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped into the five principal air centers of the planet where, as it is released, contact with the ether of space and transform it into atmosphere. There is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years, and the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. So the ninth ray is not this weird unusual thing that no one knows what it is according to the stories uh, but in the movie it's this uh, unusual powerful ray that the therns give to the uh, the bad red uh, red city um, for it to um, defeat the helium the red city of helium so it's like little changes like that make it uh, make you wonder what they were thinking you know it's like the, i'm sure they were trying to dumb it down for a general audience and you know for non rice non burroughs fans or non fans of john carter and you know having read the comic series primarily none of that was really dealt with you know the the atmosphere factories were dealt with that was important because the planet was dying and to keep everyone alive they had to create the atmosphere with the atmosphere plant factories so that was described and, and discussed but i don't remember the ninth ray so although i i read or what was i i read and then i heard in that voice of america version of the princess of mars that carter uses the ninth ray to open up the door to the atmosphere's factory at the end of the story so that they can get in and try to restart the factory because everyone's dying on Mars because the atmosphere factories have shut down. So that's where the ninth ray is mentioned. I know. So 
But it's it's unusual, I would think, that you take a group of, of Martians from the bo- stories and make them these all-powerful creatures, and then they, they control the Ninth Ray, which in the books apparently is very common. And, well, not common, but it's very important and valuable, and they need it to, to live on the planet. And in the, in the movie, it's like, oh, there's this Ninth Ray. Uh, it's, let's just use it as this weapon that we can give the bad guys so that they have control you know so it's it's just weird decisions like that you know make you question what they were thinking and uh, but overall like I've said it's a good movie it's not a bad movie it's a fun movie it's well made I didn't see in 3d I saw it in 2d but I didn't think it needed 3d myself you know and overall it you know while I was confused by the therns in the movie I didn't understand for the most part what they were because they're not really dis- they're not explained that well in the movie. You know, I now understand them, but when I left the theater I was still confused by them. So but Carter defeats them for the most part anyway. You know, but you know, we know now that they're just white Martians and they're given more power in the movie than they really had in the stories. So but it's it's a good movie. I would definitely recommend it if you can see it for a dollar fifty for sure. I would recommend it in a second. I did not uh, feel that it dragged at all. I thought it was interesting. I thought the action was good. While I've heard others complain because they didn't know anything about the story, they were confused by the Tharks and Warhoons, which are just two tribes of the Green Men. You know, and and one thing I didn't like is the Tharks, the Green Men's tusks, like their teeth that stick up are kind of it's like a whole part of their face kind of like the um, aliens and predator where their mouth kind of opens up sideways and has a tooth kind of on it that's what they were like in the movie but i could see there's a fight in the movie where Tars Tarkas is challenged for the leadership of the tharks and they butt heads and their tusks the teeth sticking up kind of stick together like tusks kind of and I could see that whole design being set up for that scene because in the comics, the, the teeth look ten times better. And what's funny is, if you look at, it's, um, I think it's it's the Warlord of Mars, the second book. There, there's an illustration from the 1920, I think it is, or 18, 1918 um, novelization, the novel, that shows the Tharks looking more like the Marvel Comics version than the movie. So, you know, although I've seen in some art for the books, they they have kind of thinner, really skinny Tharks too, or Green Men. But uh, looking at that old illustration, I can't find it now, but it was, um, oh, you know what? It might be here. It's right here. It's a four-armed green Martian on his thoat as represented in the original 1920 edition of Thuvia Made of Mars. So that's the, the book it's from. And they're, they're thicker. They have the teeth like the Marvel version, and the thoats look like the Marvel version. So the Marvel guys did their homework. They seem to have gotten the look right of these guys, whereas the movie said, eh, we know what it looks like, but we're going to interpret it apparently. So, And I don't know if they hit it right on, if you ask me. It's much better than the sci-fi movie version of John Carter starring, um, what's her name, Tracy Lords. The the Tharks and that, the Green Men, are just guys with masks. And, you know, they didn't even go with the, the way they look in the comics or in the books. They just made these masks for them that look nothing like it. 
So, although before this movie existed, I was, I didn't mind that John Carter because I, I don't know how many other versions really of John Carter there are, if there are any. So I kind of, I accepted that as being not that bad. But uh, this one is, you know, 10 times better than the sci-fi version, of course. But like I said, I don't know where the 250 million went. But uh, it is a good-looking movie, whereas people have complained about the the computer-generated stuff. But I think it's a good-looking movie. I don't know. I I don't have any real complaints about it other than, you know, the changes that I don't understand why they did. And, you know, they added Edgar Rice Burroughs in the beginning as kind of a wraparound reading um, the journals of John Carter, which which I think is kind of a neat addition, actually, to the movie. So that I can't complain about. But if I were to rate it, which I I don't rate movies, but I, I would say it's worth going to see, you know. I I would definitely watch it on cable if it were on and if if it were um, a rental if it were inexpensive I would rent it in a second. Now one interesting thing about the uh reading the John Carter comics to me was it turned me on kind of to another well well there was another well first here's how I came across the John Carter comics. Cuz like I said there were 28 issues and 3 annuals. And one day as a kid, and it started in 77, so this might have been 78, I walked into the bathroom at home and you know sat down to go to the bathroom, and I look, and there, there was a hamper, a clothes hamper in the in the room, and that's where you know bath, where you put your dirty clothes. And the, on the hamper was a comic. Actually laying next to the hamper on the floor was this comic. And I'm sitting there, so I think, oh, what is this? And I pick it up, and I start to read, and then it's, it's issue 14 of the John Carter comic from Marvel. And I was hooked instantly. It was fantastic. And I don't know if that's the best issue of the series or not, but the cover was great, and, and it just grabbed me. And I had to have the rest of them. So I, little by little, found, you know, I kept started buying the new ones and started finding the old back issues. And, like, we would go on vacation up north in Michigan, and I'd find back issues at the bait shops up north for a dime or a quarter. You know, this was back when... Comics were, you know, cheap, 35 cents-ish. I would think they were still at that point. So, but little by little, I built up my collection until I had them all, and it was so cool. But my first exposure to it was finding it in the bathroom at home. And what's funny is after I found that comic, it, it became mine. So I don't know whose it was. There were two brothers, and it had to be one of theirs because someone brought this comic into the bathroom, but... It became mine after that. And what's funny is no one ever said, where's my comic? You know, so to them it was nothing. It meant nothing. But to me it was very important. And it was important enough to this day, you know, 77 to 2012 or 78 to 2012, these, you know, 30-something years later to uh, to go see a movie in the theater and uh, and enjoy it because of it. So, but what's interesting is, Having stumbled across John Carter in the comics, I was working in the 90s for um, um, government television in a city near here. And uh, I was working at the public library doing a shoot, multi-camera shoot. And in the room we were in, the whole wall of the room was full of books. It was where the library has their used book sale. And for like a quarter, they had paperbacks and hardcovers for 50 probably. And I ran across this this book. I think it was issues. It was um, 
It was the seventh installment of the series of this book, which has eight, eight books and then a final book that's set years later. So I think, I think seven was the one I, I ran across at this used book sale and, oh, there's no cover. And, uh, I bought it and took it home and read it. And again, I was hooked. And what's interesting, it's called The Lost Regiment, is this series. It's kind of an alternative history, science fiction um, series. And in it, a Union regiment, while being transported by ship, goes through a storm and ends up on another planet. And this planet's called Valenia. And it's kind of like Carter being transported to Mars, but these guys are transported um, mystically to what turns out to be not so mystically later to this planet and uh, called Valenia. And on this planet are these giant barbarian creatures that are just like, not in appearance, but just like in, in character and their social structure to the, the green men of Mars which is amazing. They don't have the four arms. They just have two arms. But they're like 12 to 15 feet tall. They're covered in fur. They're called the Horde. And they're the, they're on this planet. And they, they're just like the Tharks. They're nomadic. They're, they're barbarians. And, but they eat humans on Valenia. So they, they call humans cattle. And on this planet, Valenia, humans from different periods in time and different parts of the Earth are transported via these portals, they're called. Apparently the Horde originally, you know, thousands of years before or something like that, uh, were this highly advanced race and they, they traveled through space and Valenia was one of the planets they settled on apparently. And they had these gates, like these Stargate kind of things set up. And they had some, you know, uh, that's what these people on Earth keep stumbling through is these stargates and being sent to Valenia and there's Chinese and Japanese and Russians and um, Vikings and all these uh, and they, they end up being sent to Valenia through these portals and then they settle there and build their civilizations Carthaginians and Romans and you know so it's it's pretty cool and this Union um, ship comes through and it's basically the most advanced technologically that gets sent through and it's because they have all of their weapons from the Civil War. And uh, they battle the Horde. And uh, it's really cool. And it's kind of like in, in John Carter where, you know, there's the different tribes of the Green Men. There's the different tribes of the Horde. So they battle one group and, you know, different... These Horde groups, they just kind of travel around the world and... Uh, eating these humans as they go and the humans give them tribute like every 10th person or something has to follow has to you know show up to them and be sacrificed and eaten kind of thing something like that and the the lost regiment uh soldiers help battle against them and little by little they defeat them and it's pretty cool it's a pretty cool series it's written by a guy named william r fortschen his name is spelled F-O-R-S-T-C-H-E-N. If you ever want to pick up these books, they're the Lost Regiment series. And they're really cool. But what's funny is there's such a similarity to John Carter, and I never really saw it till recently that there was a similarity. Except Carter, of course, is a Union soldier sent to Mars. 
and this is a regiment of, I mean, Carter is a Confederate soldier, sorry, that's a big mistake, and this is a Union regiment sent to Valenia. So, but it's very similar, and these giant horde creatures um, are very similar to the Green Men of Mars, so it's very cool. I would definitely recommend reading uh, the John Carter stories. I'm going to try the Venus stories from Burroughs also, and I would totally recommend the, the series of Marvel comics on John Carter. I think they're fantastic. The art is good. The stories are good. It, they totally grabbed me, and at that point, I knew nothing about John Carter when I was exposed to the comics, So, but they created my lifelong love of the character, which led to me going to see this movie and enjoying it. And also, I would, if you like that, the Lost the Regiment series pretty good too. It's pretty violent, but uh, it's pretty good. It's for, kind of graphic and gory at times too. All of the people being eaten and things, but uh, it's still really good. And uh, you know, it's not for little kids necessarily, but for adults, I would say it's pretty cool. You know, so I would definitely give Car- John Carter a shot. And if you like reading, read the stories, read the comics, and please. Um, if you're inclined, check out the Lost Regiment books because they are really, really good, I think. Suddenly, I heard a low noise behind me. So could the rest of the Apaches. They all turned and fled. The sound became louder, but still I could not move. I could not turn my head to see what was behind me. All day, I lay like this. I tried again to rise, and again, but I still could not move. Then, I heard a sharp sound. It was like a steel wire breaking. I quickly stood up. My back was against the cave wall. I looked down. There before me lay my body. For a few moments, I stood looking at my body. I could not bring myself to touch it. I was very frightened. The sounds of the cave and the sight of my body forced me away. I slowly backed to the opening of the cave. I turned to look at the Arizona night. I could see a thousand stars. As I stood there, I turned my eyes to a large red star. I could not stop looking at it. It was Mars, the red planet, the red god of war. It seemed to pull me near. Then, for a moment, I closed my eyes. There was an instant of extreme cold and total darkness. Suddenly, I was in deep, dreamless, peaceful sleep. I opened my eyes upon a very strange land. I immediately knew then I was on Mars. Not once did I question this fact. My mind told me I was on Mars, as your mind tells you that you are upon Earth. 
You do not question the fact. Nor did I. I know my explanation of John Carter, the stories and the movie, especially the stories, um, is kind of rough, and I admit that I uh, don't have as much experience with the actual novels as I do with the comics, and the comics um, are kind of like that Voice of America audio version uh, that I talked about earlier, Princess of Mars, that I've mentioned a couple times at least. Um, You know, the comics kind of... uh, jump past a lot of information like I was just reading online uh, issue 11 I think it is and uh, it's the it's the story of uh, Deja Thoris and that's what it's called actually Um, and it's funny because it the whole point where Deja Thoris has been taken captive by the Tharks and um, John Carter's kind of getting to know her and um, they plan their escape and then they escape that's basically the story of this issue it kind of um, gives you a little more um, information about Deja Thoris and you get to see Carter um, interacting with her and then they plan their escape they escape and then they get to that point in the movie where um, they see the Thark horde kind of of warriors coming after them. They see a cloud of dust, and Carter, John Carter, tells Sola and Deja Thoris to go on, and he's going to stay and slow them down. And then they, <laughs> that happens. You know, the last panel of that page, which is the second to last page, is Carter with his sword raised. And then the next page, basically in one panel... It's, the whole page is just two panels, one on top and one on the bottom. The top panel is basically <laughs> Carter, you know, the previous page, he's standing there waiting for the Tharks to come so he can battle them to uh, to slow them down. And then we know for the most part that I think what happens is the um, ships from helium fly over and, and kind of rescue him and... Uh, and then he and Dejah Thoris make it to Helium, and then they have the adventures of the movie, kind of, where they battle um, the other cities, Zagdanga, and uh, it's funny because, and, and then they get married. Well, this handles that whole rest of the story in one panel where it says, I survived that encounter with the Tharks, basically, only to find myself in another in the city of Zadanga, where I learned Dejah Thoris was held captive. <laughs> and then the whole picture is just Carter standing over Dejah Thoris laying on the ground, and there's a big battle going on around him. And it says, Making friends with the Tharks, I led them and the men of Helium against the city of Rogues, where we rescued Dejah Thoris and leveled the damned city behind us little realizing we were spawning an even greater threat to all Barsoom on that blood-smeared battlefield. And it's like the whole rest of the movie basically happens, and I don't know how many pages of The Princess of Mars, happens in one frame. <laughs> it's a big one, but it's one frame. And then the final frame of the book is Dejah Thoris and John Carter getting married. It's one, all the swords are raised around them, and they're dressed in fancy clothes, and they're holding hands, and... uh it says that they uh, they got married. So 
you know, it's like the comics have to jump around because they don't have the ability unless they go for years to tell, you know, all of the stories in detail. And John Carter, as we know, only went 28 issues and three annuals. So they obviously didn't have time in these books to uh, go into a lot of detail. So, and we know the movie uh, had to jump over a lot of stuff too, because even though it was pretty long, at least a couple hours long, um, they still didn't have time to, to go into detail on everything. Although, unfortunately, they went into detail on some stuff that didn't seem interesting to me. But whatever. Um, overall, I, it was a positive experience. And uh, and I hope I haven't turned anyone off with my description and uh, my uh, discussion of uh, one-sided discussion, admittedly, of the John Carter movie and John Carter Warlord of Mars comics and my little knowledge of the John Carter, Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. So hopefully I've inspired someone to uh, to uh, look into these more. And hopefully, again, uh, sparked your interest in the Lost Regiment books because they are really good. It was dark when I opened my eyes again. My clothing felt stiff and strange. I sat up. I could see light from an opening. I walked outside. The land looked strange to me. I looked up to the sky and saw the red planet Mars. I was once again on Earth in the desert of Arizona. I cried out with deep emotion. Did the worker reach the machines to renew the atmosphere? Did the air reach the people of that planet in time to save them? Was my princess Deja Thoris alive, or did she lie cold in death? For ten years now, I have watched the night sky looking for an answer. I believe she and our child are waiting there for me. Something tells me that I shall soon know. Now, on to another thing that I've mentioned many times on the Dark Room podcast um, is my love for the movie The Horror Express or Horror Express starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and as it says on my DVD featuring Telly Savalas because when he's on the screen in this movie he just totally steals the movie he's excellent in it he's uh, <laughs> he's very good um, but I've yeah I've talked about Horror Express quite a bit I'm sure everyone knows the synopsis a quick synopsis would be um, Christopher Lee is an archaeologist, and when he's in the, the, uh, oh, where is he? Like, I guess he's in Siberia because that's part of where they're traveling. He finds what he thinks is the missing link, basically a frozen kind of caveman kind of figure, and um, it's frozen in the ice, and he removes it and puts it in a crate and plans to take it back to, I would guess, England for study and research and everything. And so he 
travels for weeks with it to get to where he can get on the express, the uh, the train. I guess it's the or it's not the Orient Express, it's the Chongqing Express or something. Um, but it's a you know, or it's the Trans Siberian Railroad or something. It's it's um some famous train. I'm sorry, it escapes me right now. But they're traveling through Siberia because at one point uh, <laughs> when uh, Telly Savalas and his soldiers come onto the train to investigate what's happening because people are being killed. One woman says, I'll have you, I'll see to it that you end up in Siberia. And he says, <laughs> I am in Siberia. <laughs> but anyway, um, Christopher Lee boards the train with his crate. But before, well, he boards the train and before the crate can be moved on, someone tries to break into it and, and ends up dying. Uh, they find him uh, dead on the ground with white eyes and um later they do an autopsy and find that his brain is totally smooth also although i don't know if they if they autopsy that guy that guy may stay behind and they autopsy another victim later but that's what they find and uh peter cushing uh turns out to be kind of a rival archaeologist and he shows up as they're boarding the train and uh and it's uh I feel bad because I don't want to go totally into this the synopsis all over again because I'm sure everyone's heard it already and or seen the movie, but um, needless to say, people end up getting killed throughout the story, and it turns out that the fossil that um, Lee has found is is alive and really, it's a caveman, but it's inhabited by the the energy of an alien or the kind of the spirit of an alien who has the ability to transfer himself from one body to another. And uh, he's done that throughout history for the most part. Like he, he came to this planet and was accidentally left behind and has survived in different animals since, uh, mil, you know, for millions of years or so, you know. And uh, this is his chance to be in humans, you know, because now he's been found and brought to civilization, supposedly. But um, one thing you would think is, if if this were his opportunity, why does he keep killing people? Why wouldn't he just um, hide out till he gets to gets you know out of this cold, frozen area and gets back to the world, and then he can do whatever he wants? But you know, again, it's the same thing I said in Alien. I mean, not Alien, the Thing, the John Carpenter, the Thing. Why keep um, assimilating humans? Why not just? you know, take over one and then never reveal yourself because then you can get back to civilization and and take over the world if you want, you know. So it doesn't make sense. But one cool thing that happens in this movie is Christopher Lee does confront the alien and ask him who is he or what he wants or what's going on. And he does kind of explain himself. And it, that's what I thought when I saw the Thing prequel that when um, they were on the ship and they, they kind of interact with the, or battle, I guess, the thing in its original form or a, a, a different form at least, why they don't talk to it and, and just, you know, and ask it what it wants and, you know, and all that. It's like that would have been the time for them to learn about this alien and then us learn about it, but they don't, which I think is something cool that happens at Horror Express that we do get to learn about the alien, which is kind of neat. It makes you kind of feel sad at the end. You know, hopefully I'm not spoiling it for everyone, but 
I don't think the reason you watch Horror Express is for the ending, if you ask me. Um, when the train smashes over the cliff, goes over the cliff and smashes into the ground and explodes, and the alien is killed, and he has no uh, opportunity to transfer himself to another body, so in, we're to believe that he dies. Um, you kind of feel bad for him because he says, you know, he he's just trying to, you know, survive and all that. But uh, you don't feel as bad for him because he keeps killing people while he's doing this. So he's he's not a, that nice of a guy. But anyway, um, people keep dying. And Cushing and Lee and uh, Cushing's assistant do um, autopsies on the bodies and they find that the eyes are totally white and the brain is totally smooth as if all of the experiences and, and information in the brain has been sucked out of it. And uh, they believe, you know, the, uh, Lee tells this police inspector later his hypothesis is that the eyes are how the alien sucks the information out. And, uh, you know, the the uh, the alien ends up having to jump from one body to another throughout the story. And then in the end, he's in this monk's body. And uh, and uh, to defend himself, he, he, ri- he raises all of the bodies that he sucked the life out of and they attack the rest of the people on the train and um they all run to the baggage car i think it is to hide and uh and for the most part everyone ends up surviving because they they pull the pin or whatever on the train car that they're in and the train the rest of the train goes flying over a cliff killing the alien and everyone else lives because their their car comes to a stop right at the edge of the cliff and they look down and watch the burning and the really cool um, theme music comes on at the end, which is pretty cool. It's probably very dated, but it's still really fun. But anyway, in a nutshell, that's what happens in Horror Express. And uh, I had talked about last show, I think it was, about the different dollar store versions of Horror Express I have. And even though it's not in public domain, you can get these kind of public domain style versions of it. And that... um, my favorite DVD at this point was the Digiview Productions version, even though it was only 85 minutes, so in theory it's missing five minutes of the movie. But last week I got another version of it that's another dollar store version, basically, by Diamond Entertainment. And um, you'll know them because their cases are clear. So on your DVD it's got a clear case, which you don't see that often. But... The first thing I noticed with this version, this DVD version, is the, the cover is great. It's it's three scenes from the movie, basically, in like a montage, in like a visual montage on the cover. One is where Savalas is interrogating Lee and Cushing in the train car. Another is the fossil, as they call him, the caveman um, cutout. Another is um, the monk who becomes the alien later with glowing eyes cut out who is actually one of the best parts of the movie also and then a female laying on the ground i, I guess dead i think she's the one who uh, was the thief trying to break into the who does break into the uh, safe and or that or she's the maybe she's the count's wife i think she's the count's wife but anyway the the cover is really cool the text is a little weak it's kind of hand-drawn horror express with christopher lee and peter cushing at the top but overall i love the cover of this dvd um, and, um, like I said, this, or hopefully, well, maybe I hadn't said, this is now my favorite version of 
my dollar store versions of Horror Express. I don't have Blu-ray. I'm still watching TV on a a 20-inch Sony with a tube, so, you know, I don't have Blu-ray. But uh, I watch all my DVDs on my Sony, and so I don't really need Blu-ray. So a dollar store version is fine. And what's funny is, like I had said before, in, previ- in a previous episode, I watched Horror Express on TCM Underground, and it was a very clean print. And this new one is almost as clean as the TCM one. And it's full frame, unfortunately, but I think the TCM was even full frame. But uh, it's so nice. It's so clean. And uh, and it doesn't feel like it's a video transfer. It feels like it's a film transfer. And even at one point, there's a bad spot in the film and it kind of jumps in the frame. So it feels like this was a film transfer and it's you can see the grain it's really nice um it's kind of rich and it's and it's not you know overexposed or anything it looks really good so i'm i'm really happy with this version and the bonus is it's the 90 minute edition so it's got all of the information on it all of the story even though when i just watched it again i don't notice where the information is added so something is is extra there for five minutes, but I can't tell you where it is. You know, I'd have to go online and research a DVD Beaver or something where they talk about different versions of the movies. But suffice it to say, this 95-minute version is really good, and uh, this Diamond Entertainment transfer is really nice. You know, I'm no, I'm no uh, expert, and like I said, I'm not watching it on HD, really. I'm just watching it on a regular SD TV, tube TV. But uh, I think it's great. I uh, I would totally recommend it if you can get the Diamond Entertainment version for a dollar. Um, I would jump at it. And uh, another thing I saw lately, which was pretty cool, was a H.P. Lovecraft documentary called Fear of the Unknown. And it kind of looked into his, uh, you know, gave a biography kind of of Lovecraft and talked kind of about um, what was going on in his life at the time that he was doing certain books, kind of. But the most interesting sto- uh, part of the documentary is that there are all these interviews with these famous people like Guillermo del Toro and Neil Gaiman. Gaiman's in it a lot. John Carpenter, Peter Straub, um, Stuart Gordon is in it a lot, um, and a bunch of other people that I didn't necessarily recognize, but but um, it was pretty interesting and it gave me some insight into um, Lovecraft and it's free on Crackle, crackle.com. If you're interested in learning more about Lovecraft, uh, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Now, um, something I've been reading lately is a book I found at the library called Beneath the Dark Ice and it's by a guy named Greg Beck, G-R-E-I-G-B-E-C-K. And, uh, I think I've said in another previous show that my favorite book of all time is probably The Descent by Jeff Long. It could be The Long Walk by Richard Bachman. I guess you could say it's by, but everyone knows it's Stephen King or Rage. But I think Long Walk is probably my second favorite. And I think um, The Descent is my first favorite. And uh, this Beneath the Dark Ice, just reading the synopsis of it, made me think a lot of the descent um they both take place for the most part underground and there there's kind of a military feel to it you know there's like an expedition going underground and uh and uh kind of um 
just and the fact that they encounter kind of something unknown underground that well it's it's interesting because in both um, worlds the world of the descent and the world of beneath the dark ice um, they're it's very hostile and when they go down there they're you know they're they're totally outmatched they deal with animals and creatures um, in both worlds that are way faster and stronger and smarter than they are but uh, they end up kind of you know fighting through it and getting at least some of them making it through and uh, they both have strong male leads Ike I think his name is in The Descent and uh, Alex Hunter I think is his name and uh and beneath the dark ice and uh they both have interesting stories and they're both kind of superhuman in some ways even though you know they're they're not necessarily supernatural but they're just um highly trained and skilled and uh it's just very cool the similarities and i i picked up beneath the dark ice because of that because it felt like it was going to be like the descent and it, it's enough like it where i think it's really cool and i would totally recommend it it's uh this plane crashes in Antarctica and breaks through the ice, um, exposing a big cave underground that um, an expedition is sent to to um, rescue, I guess, if anyone survived this accident. And when they go there, I think it was they knew ahead of time that there was a big amount of liquid under the ground there, and they were hoping it was oil. But we know it turns out to be like an ocean underground but or a sea at least or a big lake underground and so they send an expedition to uh, check it out i would guess because of the makeup of the first expedition i would think they knew that from what i i'm not totally remembering it because it's late and i'm tired but uh, but i think they pretty much um, were expecting to find oil the first expedition of course disappears so a few days later i guess a second expedition is sent to figure out what happened and they start to uh, disappear one by one and we find out what uh, what the the creature kind of is in, in the book and i i'm not a big fan of saying spoilers but i don't think i'm going to spoil this one right now suffice it to say that they they meet a pretty tough creature and have to fight their way out of it and the story the book is 310 pages long and I'm 218 so I'm almost I have almost 100 pages left wow that's crazy it doesn't look like it or feel like it but I have quite a bit left and so uh, it's pretty entertaining I don't know if I would um, say this is at the level of the descent but I think uh, the author Greg Beck is pretty good and of course, this is the only thing I've read by him, but he has other books that look interesting. And as I had hoped, Alex Hunter, the main character for the most part of Beneath the Dark Ice, um, kind of has a series of books, which is cool because he's a, he's a kind of a, a special forces kind of guy, a hawk. They call him, I can't remember what the letters stand for, but he's he was shot in the head by a Russian um, special forces guy that we see that we meet in this story and the bullet went into part of the brain that basically stimulated part of the brain and made him kind of superhuman 
super smart, super fast, super strong. So he's he's a pretty cool. He's kind of like a, a Jason Bourne kind of thing, but even more so. You know, he's like the perfect killing machine now, and but he has these fits of rage that he has to control along with this. But it's pretty cool, and I'm looking forward to to meeting him in other stories. I, one looks like it's kind of a prequel, and uh, hopefully there are other ones where he goes on adventures because uh, I can't wait to read those because he's a pretty cool character. And what's interesting, I had started reading some Lovecraft recently, and uh, the Beneath the Dark Ice is very Lovecraftian in some ways because they find this, you know, remnants of an ancient civilization underground in in their Antarctica, and the main big creature they they come across is a lot like a, a Lovecraft kind of creature, so... But um, hopefully you'll you'll give it a shot and discover it for yourself. But uh, definitely, I would I would recommend Greg Beck and Beneath the Dark Ice is really good. So uh, you know you could do worse than try this book out. I think you could you could read Twilight, I guess, <laughs> which I haven't done and I probably won't do. But anyway, um, an interesting movie I just got or documentary I just got out of the library. Is called Corman's World Exploit Exploits of a Hollywood Rebel, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching that and hopefully in an upcoming show discussing it because um, uh, Death Race 2000 is one of my favorite movies of all time. We saw it at the drive-in when we were kids, and it was funny because we, I think it was 72, maybe it came out something like that, or 74, and we were kids, and uh, so I was probably like five or six or seven, and uh, when the nude scene comes up where they are getting the massages um, at night when they take the break from racing, my mom (laughs) yelled at us and made us lay down and go to sleep in the back seat, and of course, if you tell three young boys to not look at the screen, they're going to look at the screen, so we peeked over and got to see uh, possibly our first glimpse of female nudity i think for me it was at least and uh, it was pretty cool (laughs) but uh needless to say death race 2000 has stuck with me and even though corman i think just produced that paul bartell i think directed it still a corman movie as far as i'm concerned so i'm at least that big of a fan of corman and so i'm interested in seeing um a little bit more about him so uh, hopefully I've heard people talk about Corman's world on other podcasts and everyone raves about it. So I'm hoping that it's as good as they say, or half as good as people are saying, and then it'll be pretty good. But in an upcoming show, an upcoming episode of the dark room podcast, I'm sure to talk about it maybe next time, maybe the time after, but anyway, uh, that's probably it for this episode. I, hopefully I haven't been too, um, too uh, dense, I guess, in my discussion of John Carter. Uh, just uh, as I keep saying, I you know I'm not a John Carter or a Edgar Rice Burroughs scholar or anything. I'm just going by what I know or what I've experienced of John Carter and Edgar Rice Burroughs. I think most I've ever experienced by him is Tarzan for the most part, and more mostly in the Johnny Weissmiller ones. And people are were saying online how those were horrible when compared to the Tarzan novels like they didn't resemble them at all so uh, 
so I guess I don't really know Burroughs' Tarzan very well um, when you when you compare the Weissmiller versions, even though he was my favorite Tarzan, because he was the one we saw as kids, and that was the one that had Cheetah in it, and Boy, and all that. So, uh, so, but anyway, um, just uh, take my Burroughs and John Carter discussion with a grain of salt, and re, you know, remember that I'm just uh, going from experience here, and I'm sure everyone else has different experiences with John Carter or with Tarzan or with Burroughs. And uh, if you want to share those with me, you can contact me at the darkroompodcast at gmail.com. And hopefully if I ever get a letter, I will read it on the show. Uh, I can't guarantee it, but I may read it on the show. If not, I will respond to it, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, we have that to look forward to, the Corman stuff, and maybe a little more eventual John Carter talk because that omnibus will be coming eventually from the library for me to talk about. I'll let you know if I think it's worth 50 bucks, but I think right now it's going to be hard for me to think it's not worth 50 bucks because just reading these John Carter's um, stories online where it's just a bunch of scans, you know, and you have to go to each JPEG version and read it, um, that's worth it. So I would think having it on a glossy, big hardcover book would be even better. So, so I'm sure we'll, we'll get a little more John Carter talk eventually also. So I'm sure there are things I've forgotten, like, like that, um, that kind of, um, giant, uh, Martian, um, dog-like creature. I can't remember what it's called that Carter has in the movie that's the fastest creature on Mars. And the uh, and it's really tough, and it's like a it's like a battle dog and a guard dog kind of thing, but it's gigantic, like a giant bulldog, um, which wasn't ever mentioned in the comic version, but was mentioned in my audio version, and I've seen it in the uh, the uh, Gutenberg Project text version, the Princess of Mars, the Burroughs novel, and it's a big part of the movie, so. Um, it'd be nice to talk about that a little more eventually. And one thing that interested me too is how they fly and on Mars. They don't talk about flying on air; they fly on light. Like I had said, I think it was the eighth, what, the eighth ring or eighth ray that is the one that is used to to fly. So it's kind of neat that they fly on light instead of flying on air like we do. So, but those are things I'm sure we can talk about in the future. And, crossing my fingers that new John Carter toys come out because that movie is getting closer and closer to having made a profit it seems like or I think it's past it but who knows about this fuzzy math that movie studios do you know I'm sure they don't want to make a profit but uh, even if they do I'm sure we won't hear about it but anyway until next time uh, please check out John Carter in his many forms and uh, let me know what you think and check out um Beneath the Dark Ice, if you get a chance, or any other Greg Beck book. And if you do and uh, you think it's cool or if you think it's horrible, uh, give, me a, give me a call at, uh, you know, drop me a line at uh, thedarkroompodcast at gmail.com. Let me know, and I'll talk about it on the show if, uh, if you let me know. <laughs> so anyway, until next time, uh, read something, read The Lost Regiment, and uh, watch the movies. And uh, I'll see you then. It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off!
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.